If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel. We're back in John's Gospel. We'll look at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, and the text is printed in the bulletin for you, starting with verse 55. In the year 2000, which uh, still seems really futuristic to me, but it's like a long time ago now, Um, in the year 2000, some folks at the Wall Street Journal invented an annual occasion called Open That Bottle Night. Have you heard of that? Open That Bottle Night? Nobody? Nobody heard of it? Okay, all right. Apparently, uh, wealthy wine enthusiasts have a perennial problem When you own a really fancy, really expensive bottle of really good wine that ages well, well, naturally you want to save it for a special occasion, right? Um, You're not just going to have it with spaghetti on a Monday night. Even if you're fabulously wealthy, it really would be a waste not to save it for a special occasion, wouldn't it? The problem is when no occasion is deemed to be special enough. How do you decide when to open that bottle that you've been saving for so long? Is a birthday really important enough for that anymore? (laughs) Um, The solution to this problem uh, is, according to the wine people at Wall Street Journal, just declare one night a year to be open that bottle night and go for it. Just drink your best bottle on that night. Don't wait for some future event that's never going to take place. Declare that night and open it, right? Have some friends over, prepare a feast, open that bottle and enjoy it, or else, let's be honest, you probably never will. Um, When that night comes around, you'll probably encounter some internal resistance. You'll hold that bottle that you've been holding on to for a while, you hold it in your hands, and you'll wonder, Is this really the right time to consume this, or will it just be a waste? Um, There's some instinct in us that goes against enjoying something so valuable. Once you drink it, it's gone. And you don't have it anymore. It's served its purpose, right? The more attached you are to your wealth, The more value you place on your your treasures and possessions like that, the more space these things take up inside your heart, the more difficult it would be to open that bottle, especially if you were sharing it with others. Because, I mean, let's be honest, when you've been holding on to a very expensive, nice aging bottle of wine for a long time, how many glasses really do you want to part with when you open it and share it with other people? Or how dreadful to consider, what if you gave that bottle to someone else and they just went and had it on Monday night with spaghetti. That's dreadful. What a shame that would be. What a waste of a good thing. It's scandalous. Probably would have been better for me just to hang on to that bottle for myself. Something quite like that is happening. It has happened in the gospel, as our passage uh, this morning would indicate. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, probably going to change the title of this sermon from Core Values to Open That Bottle Night. (laughs) Uh, So let's see where we we go from here. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we do pray for your help. We pray for your Holy Spirit. We pray for you to come and change us from the inside out, do that work that only you can do in opening our eyes to see your glory 
from the scriptures as you've revealed yourself to us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he'll not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover... Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So we see in our passage a lot of different responses to Jesus. We're going to take those two sort of uh, bookend paragraphs um, pretty quickly and spend most of our time focusing on the middle section. But we we see a lot of different responses to Jesus. It was just before Passover, the big springtime festival, festival in Jerusalem. The whole region was abuzz with talk about Jesus, who had recently raised a local man, uh, Lazarus, from the dead. And he had done that publicly. A lot of people witnessed it, and soon everybody knew about it. (coughs) Some were intrigued and uh, were interested in him, maybe just as a controversial figure, right? They're looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, do you think he'll come? you think he'll even come? What about the danger? Everybody knows Jesus is in danger because... The chief priests and Pharisees want him arrested. Um, the chief priests and Pharisees are the very religious people and the pastors. Um, they wanted to arrest Jesus. So that's a response people are having to Jesus. They want to arrest him. They want to get rid of him. After the dinner party, that's sort of the focus of our passage this morning, the, the large crowd will seek out Lazarus along with Jesus. Not just Jesus, but those who are associated with Jesus, those who are witnessing, bearing witness about Jesus, um, a lot of them because of curiosity. Lazarus will become some, something of a lightning rod. People will react to Jesus through Lazarus, through his testimony to Jesus. And some will respond with faith, it says, and some will respond with murder in their hearts, not just wanting to kill Jesus now, but kill people who are making a big deal about Jesus. Stamp out the whole movement, right? 
<clears throat> we especially see a diversity of responses to Jesus at the dinner party, at the dinner party. So Martha has her response to who Jesus is and what he's done in her life with her brother Lazarus, and she's doing what she's always done. She's serving, right? That's good. That's fine. Uh, she has her brother back from the dead. She's serving the one who has given him back to her. Her brother Lazarus, I think he's having another response to Jesus. He's apparently just glad and thankful to be alive. He's enjoying Jesus' company, relaxing at the table with him as one of the guests at this feast, this party, this dinner party, throwing in Jesus' honor. But John fixes our attention on the, the responses primarily of Judas and Mary. These are the two big responses that are contrasted for us, the two paradigmatic responses of Judas and Mary. Judas is a disciple. He's been with Jesus for a couple of years, and if we expect anybody to have a good response to Jesus and to his kingdom, it'd be someone like Judas, who's one of the twelve. He's one of the ones who are very close to Jesus for a number of years, but the closer Judas gets to Jesus, the more threatened he feels. The more he gets to know Jesus, the more frustrated he becomes. There's a lot of friction generated for Judas in this event that's recorded for us this morning here. Uh, enough friction that really this triggers his ultimate betrayal of Jesus to the authorities. Uh, we see the, the parallel passage to this in Matthew and Mark, and uh, at least one of them says something like, that was, that was the last straw for Judas, and he went looking for opportunities to betray Jesus after that. <clears throat> so that's his response to Jesus. But Mary, Mary, the beauty of her response to Jesus is unparalleled in all the Gospels. She's the type of girl who wears her heart on her sleeve. She's a very relational person. She's not self-conscious about showing affections. She adores Jesus. That's clear. She's thankful to him for restoring her brother Lazarus to life. And we don't know how much she understood about Jesus and his mission and his kingdom, his teachings, uh, the atonement. We don't know how much she understood. But she saw God's glory in Jesus to some degree. She's seeing something of God's glory, which is what Jesus intended. And the very fact that she was able to see her brother, who was dead not long ago, one of the worst things that ever happened to her, her brother was dead, and now she gets to see him at a dinner party, sitting and hanging out with Jesus, whom she adores. That, that very fact kindled her devotion and moved her to act. It says in ch uh, <clears throat> chapter 12, verse 2, Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at table. Therefore, because she sees this, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So it sounds like they were dining at uh, what was sort of a traditional um, table 
I guess, a triclinium. It looks terribly uncomfortable to me. There's a picture of one on the next page that the kids might be coloring. <laughs> the triclinium, you should all have one in your house, not, because it's, um, I mean, you're, it's a U-shaped table. It's really low, and there's cushions, and so you're sort of propping yourself up on your elbow with your head toward the table, laying down, eating. That doesn't sound comfortable to me, sorry. <clears throat> and uh, so the U-shaped, you know, the servers would access it from the middle. They could, they could serve everybody who's sort of facing the middle, and everybody's feet are facing away from the table. The dirty feet, right, uh, are facing away, pointing away from the table. It, but it wasn't just because Jesus' feet were out there on the fringe that, um, you know, accessible that, uh, that Mary anointed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Matthew and Mark say she also anointed his head. Really, <clears throat> she, she, she had enough of this pure liquid uh, perfume that uh, she, she probably used enough to pour over his whole body, right, from head to toes. But John focuses on his feet. That's the part he mentions. Focuses on the feet in his account because it highlights Mary's extreme humility in her approach to Jesus, in her devotion to Jesus. Extreme humility. When you fall at someone's feet, when you embrace their feet, that's a position where you're, you're putting yourself at their mercy. You're at this person's mercy. This person is your Lord. When you're falling at their feet. And a woman's long hair in that culture was considered her glory. We, th- we think of it as, you know, it's beautiful. There's, there's beauty to it, but there, there's something of a status symbol. There's something more than just beauty about a, long, uh, long, a woman's long hair in that culture. It was considered her glory, and a woman didn't normally let her hair down in public. So it is an uncomfortably intimate picture of her devotion to Jesus as her Lord. Uncomfortable, I think, uh, prim and proper Presbyterians like us would have been upset, culturally speaking, for her to let down her hair and wipe Jesus' feet. What she's saying is, the best of me is yours. May be worthy to wash your feet your dirty feet. Foot washing is, um, is a slave's work back then. Uh, not a week later, Jesus would scandalize his own disciples by washing their feet. Um, learn about that in the next chapter, chapter 13. He would be teaching them that life with Jesus means first him serving us. That's what he's teaching with this pretty scandalous picture of the Lord getting down and um, wiping and cleaning the feet of his disciples. So whether she was aware of it or not, um, the Scripture doesn't indicate how, how much she understood about this, this whole thing, but whether she was aware of it or not, Mary anticipates Christ's own humility with her anointing his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. She isn't just washing his feet either. She's honoring his feet. She's honoring this very low, uh, dirty part of him, right? She's honoring him and humbling herself. She couldn't have possibly had the whole gospel figured out, but in her response to Jesus, she was reflecting Jesus' own love back to him. 
whether she would have been able to articulate that or not. She did better than she knew, probably, but Jesus knew, and now we do, too. She gave herself and all she had to Jesus, which is exactly the same kind of thing Jesus does for us. It's the same kind of complete self-gift that Jesus came into the world to make. And that's pictured for us, I think, most clearly in the fact that she pours out this ointment on him. It was expensive beyond our usual comprehension of that word. When you say expensive, you usually have something in mind. This is well beyond that. And then we learn that when Judas protests. It says in verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This is not like Antiques Roadshow where the nice lady with the perfume says, you mean this dusty old bottle is worth a fortune? Like, no, no. This is a pound. It's, it's about a pound. It's a different kind of measurement than our pound, but it's about a pound of pure liquid nard, which is distilled in tiny quantities from the root and the spike of a plant that grows in Nepal. Nepal is not close to Jerusalem. This is probably the prized heirloom of a very wealthy family. The best thing they've got a very wealthy family. 300 denarii was a year's wages. Calculate that out. It's about, let's say, $20,000 minimum wage worker annual income, gross gross income. $20,000, let's say $20,000. You don't buy perfume for $20,000. Your husband or your wife would be upset if... If you spent 20,000 a year's wages on a bottle of perfume, you don't buy it. It's irresponsible. It's borderline obscene. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, really. It's borderline obscene. And there's no conceivable occasion special enough to justify opening it. Which, as the other Gospels record, required breaking the neck of the solid alabaster alabaster flask that it was in. Once you open it, you're using it. And you can't put the stopper back in this thing. You would never open that bottle. You would never open it. Let alone pour it on someone's feet. No wonder it caused a stir among the guests. I probably would have responded like I do when my kids drop food on the floor. What are you doing? I can't believe you dropped that bean. You wasted it. <laughs> right? <clears throat> Judas, who was about to sell Jesus out for about half as much as what that, was, that nard was worth, 30 pieces of silver was about half as much as this bottle, <clears throat> um, he leads that response. The other Gospels, again, help, help us understand, really it was more murmuring than just Judas. He was representative of others who were gathered there, especially even the disciples. Um, He leads the response and complains about the waste of the ointment, but not for good reason. He doesn't complain about it for good reason. He complains about it because he's greedy. Yeah, he says, he says, we could have fed the poor with that treasure. But John knows his motives. He's clear about his motives. He tells us. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So D.A. Carson, who's a commentator on John's gospel, says about this, <clears throat> that Judas's personal greed for material things masquerades as altruism. It's not just that he was greedy. It's that he said, oh, what? that could have benefited the poor because he was greedy. The bigger the company's bank account, the more you can embezzle without being noticed. And that would have been the jackpot. <coughs> so Judas's core values <coughs> center on himself. It's the enjoyment of wealth and possessions. He valued money over other people, especially over Jesus, it says. <coughs> he valued money for what money could do for him. And he was so offended by this wasteful display of devotion to Jesus that it was the last straw for him and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus after this happens. But Mary, Mary's core values center on Jesus. Maybe we could say she, likes, she, she cares more for other people <clears throat> than for material things. Maybe we could say that, but really, <clears throat> it's, it's especially focused on Jesus here. Her heart was less attached to material wealth than it was to Jesus. Jesus was more important to her than this, even this great treasure. For Mary, it was open that bottle night because of Jesus. And it was sheer beauty. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, he says. That, <coughs> that language is meant to capture you and transport you. It would have been a powerful memory, such a strong scent, that scent spreading and overwhelming. That's the beauty of love. And Mary's devotion is so beautiful not just in and of itself, but because it reflects Christ's own devotion. That's why it's so beautiful to us. You think that Mary's open that bottle night was a waste. God created everything in this universe, top to bottom, end to end, and said it's all very good, and turned right around and gave it to us. All of it. He situated humanity in the Goldilocks zone of the Garden of Eden where everything was just right for human flourishing. And he said, friends, enjoy. And ever since that moment, we've been rebelling against him. We've been abusing his gifts. We've been taunting him with the way we use his gifts. We've drunk vintage cosmos with our spaghetti on Monday night. <laughs> Wasted everything that he's given to us, but God kept pouring it out on our heads, into our laps, over our feet. He pours and pours, even though most of it goes entirely unnoticed, unappreciated. The flowers on the remote mountainside, the giant crab crawling on the seabed, the neurons in a child's brain, the stars that blink and explode too far away for anybody ever to see. 
He pours and he pours because all creation, all history, is open that bottle night. And it's wasted on guests like us. It's wasted on people like us. <clears throat> and as if the, the world and the cosmos and the universe was not enough, he's given us more. God sent his son in the most beautiful devotion of love. He's more precious than all worlds, and he sent him to pour out his blood on the dirt for us. Jesus draws this connection between Mary's lavish gift and his own death. Uh, we see it in our passage, but I'm going to read, actually there's a bit of a, an elaboration on this in Mark's account. Uh, Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So Jesus knew better than Mary the significance of her actions, and now we do too. Her beautification, it's, it's a beautiful thing that she does to Jesus. Her beautification pales in comparison with his beautification of us, the beautiful thing that he's done. Her humility, even wiping his feet with her hair. Have you ever thought about doing anything like that? Her humility was not as absolute as his humility. The aroma of the anointing, even though it filled the whole house, that would fade. But the aroma of his gospel would fill the earth with his love. You think her ointment poured out on his feet was a waste? Essence of nard imported from Nepal? Essence of divinity imported from heaven. His death for you is not, his death for you is the obscene waste. His death is the appalling gift that makes no sense. God should have kept his son to himself. He should have. When Jesus hung on the cross, that was open that bottle night, and there is no occasion special enough for that, apart from God's love. Apart from God's loving us, there's no reason to open that bottle. There's no way that bottle should have been opened, certainly no way it should have been poured out at my feet, but there it is. Because of God's core values, he loves us more than he loves his own life. How's that for beauty? So what's your response to the beauty of Jesus Christ? Probably forget about it in about an hour or so, I shouldn't wonder. What a waste. What a glorious waste. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is absolutely scandalous to us that you would give your son for people like us. You would just keep pouring and pouring your love, even at the, the expense of his life, that you would pour everything out for us at our feet, like Mary's done here with this ointment on Jesus' feet. We pray that you would make us to behold the beauty of Jesus, 
in the apparent waste of it. Change us by that beauty. Make us the kind of people who who love Jesus and others in lavish and apparently wasteful ways. Would you help us to waste our lives for the sake of the beauty of the gospel, for the sake of others? Would you help us to love others more than we love ourselves and everything that we have? This is only possible because you, you pour out your Holy Spirit, your love into our hearts. So we pray for that gift. We pray that you keep our eyes fixed on the beauty, the extravagant and lavish outpouring of love that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.